music. Hello, Ray, are you there? Yes. Let me bring you right up. Okay, you're on the air, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can see the, d- the uh, needles are moving. So th- thank you very much for uh, joining me and us this afternoon. Sure. And perhaps um, you have a degree in biology with a specialty in physiology. Uh, do you want to add anything to that besides uh, being a science historian? Um, no, uh, except maybe that I was in the humanities for years before I went to graduate school in biology. Okay. That is an interesting part of your life, and maybe we'll be talking about that some. I, I think it guided the, the way I treated science, uh, uh, being more critical about the texts that you refer to. Mm-hmm. And maybe giving you a more humanistic attitude toward uh, science and life? Oh, oh yeah, uh, more more philosophy. Uh, uh, biologists uh, think they have a, a philosophy of science, but it's a pretty rudimentary uh, mechanistic mechanical materialism, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to define mechanical materialism for, for uh, our audience who may not be familiar with that term? Um, yeah, the, the difference between uh, uh, organismic thinking or uh, in the Whiteheadian sense or uh, historical materialism in the Marxist sense, uh, mechanistic materialism makes uh, a clear distinction between mind and matter. And uh, for them, matter is necessarily unconscious and, and stupid because intelligence exists only in their uh, realm of uh, mind or idealist philosophy. I see. So it's sort of a, a an elitism of uh, human thought uh, at the expense of the rest of the world? Yeah. Um, a clear distinction between uh, uh, mind and matter. And uh, in uh, brain biology, that's uh, changing a lot. Uh, people are realizing that, uh, that you can't solve some of the problems when you think in that dualistic way, but uh, still it tends to be a philosophical idealism uh, rather than a, a philosophical materialism. Mm. Well, that's... Uh some heady stuff that you're talking about and uh, I'd like to bring the show uh, make it fairly down to earth so people uh, can relate to it and and know what we're talking about Um, and I was thinking of talking about today about how we know whether we're healthy or not Um, there's we I think one of the ways we basically judge ourselves and how we're doing in the world is how healthy we feel and if we feel energized or uh, depressed or stimulated or uh, stressed out um, those are all conditions that we subjectively uh, put uh, or assess ourselves as um, as having and I think when the um, medical world came into being 
um, I suppose there were always uh, shamans before that. Uh, we we use professionals uh, to judge how healthy we are or how our how we are doing uh, within the the world that we live. And I thought it would be um, interesting to talk about the history of that, how we've uh, or- oriented ourselves in our world, and also uh, talking about how reality based that assessment is and or how dogmatic it is. And I was thinking to start off, perhaps uh, you could give us your experience um, from childhood on as to um, the challenges, uh, the health challenges you faced or um, triumphs uh, you've had and uh, and how that's uh, shaped your viewpoint on health in general. Um, as a little kid, I was a migrainer periodically, mm-hmm. uh, having... A combination digestive and uh, uh, visually uh, affected headaches. And uh, uh, when I was 10, uh, one of the uh, naturopathic doctors prescribed a, a bag of an herb uh, uh, to make a tea out of uh, that was supposed to uh, affect the, the migraine syndrome. And uh, years later, I discovered that it, from the taste of it, it had been uh, marijuana, but uh, it didn't help at all. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that was about the extent of my drug treatment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and is that, is that the only doctor you saw as a kid? It was a naturopath? I didn't know they... Ex- I mean, uh, what year was that? Do you, can you tell us, Ray? Uh, 1945. Okay. I didn't... I didn't know there were naturopaths back then. Oh, sure, they, they were. <laughs> they were the original doctors and and the uh, modern type of allopathic doctor uh, was just one strand, one, one ideology of medicine, and uh, there were all kinds of ideologies up until mm-hmm. the American Medical Association uh, defined one strand of medicine. Uh, how did the, how did osteopathy relate to that? Um, it was just one of the uh, theories that the, the bones <laughs> were uh, the framework of health, uh, and to, to think about the importance of of the bones in general health. Uh, the, the many many strands emphasized different things, like the old. Uh, humor theory of medicine uh, pretty well died out, but uh, those things were blended into homeopathic medicine Mm -hmm. and naturopathy. Uh, The idea, uh, the homeopathic tradition still has uh, some of that thinking in in terms of uh, personality types that are very similar to the old humor medicine. Mm. And that uh, remind. Oh, go ahead, please. Uh, the the phlegmatic and sanguine personalities and such. Uh, thinking in terms of of the the fluid related to the various organs. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the, uh, the standard medical traditions between France and England, uh, you see a very heavy emphasis in the Latin cultures on the liver and uh, the English on the intestine. 
Hmm. And uh, in Latin America, uh, cardiology is a much bigger thing uh, than in Europe, or has been traditionally. That's that's interesting. How do you account for the the emphasis on different organs from the different cultures? Um, I, I think just uh, which school of medicine happened to uh, be most uh, influential or successful. Uh, um, do you think uh, the the humors uh, was influenced or interacted with the? Uh, Indian um, and Far Eastern um, uh, traditions, like the Ayurvedic, and if I'm saying that right, um, yeah, there there was some absorption. Uh, the, the the Arabs really were were the uh, the way Greek medicine uh, came into Europe, ah. but uh, some some of the Indian culture got into the Greek. Uh, Medical tradition, and what is the Greek medical tradition? Is who who is uh, that's um, uh, the famous the Hipp- uh, Hippocratic oath? That's um, um, the only thing yeah, I but, know about it. Uh, well, it was uh, just um, pretty empirical uh, with, with uh, the, the two two main branches of it, but. Uh, it was just a, a rational uh, attempt to be uh, understanding the organism biologically. And when did these, uh, getting back to indicators of health, um, well, before I do that, actually, let's let's talk about how uh, naturopaths and before modern blood tests, how uh, doctors assessed whether a person was healthy or not. It depended a lot on the school of medicine. Uh, some of them would make judgments about which humor was dominating them or which organ. Uh, but uh, by the by the 19th century, uh, different uh, strands of biological information were being integrated into the, the different theories. Uh, so that people started thinking about uh, the cells making up the organs mm. and uh, some of the interactions of uh, of the organs. Uh, late in the 19th century, um, uh, they, were, they were realizing that uh, the, the um, sugar was uh, secreted by the by the liver to maintain a steady internal environment and uh, so f- oh shit by the, by the 19th century uh, different uh, strands of biological feel and smell and uh, even taste uh, the, the different secretions and, and lumps on the body and such and uh, uh, just examine uh, the, the person as an object to see if there was anything abnormal that they could uh, feel or, or see or, or touch, uh, smell. Um, uh, for example, uh, 
they used to taste the urine to see if a person was diabetic. And uh, hmm. uh, there were uh, many uh, ideas about what you could diagnose by smell, um, uh, including diabetes and cancer. Uh, I lately, people have been talking about the ability of dogs to uh, uh, diagnose by by smell when a person is about to have a seizure or when they're developing a cancer. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Because of their hei- their heightened smell, or is it telepathic? Do you think? Uh, possibly uh, uh, electrical fields. Uh, mm-hmm. Dogs can apparently detect. Uh, bioelectric fields the way fish can. Um, but uh, Linus Pauling was probably the first person who uh, thought of diagnosing by uh, analyzing a person's breath and found 250 uh, chemicals in the breath. And uh, wow. only a few a few places are now uh, taking advantage of that and uh, uh, analyzing seeing what diseases they can find. For example, uh, nitric oxide is uh, increased in the breath when a person has an inflammatory disease. Um, Various inflammatory uh, indicators show up in the breath. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, impressive. So basically they used all their senses to diagnose people. Uh, and, and assess how how well they were doing. Uh, yeah, as well as as listening to their their complaints and their history. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's a book put out, I think, by West Virginia Public Radio. Uh, Public Radio. Uh, they they put out a, a CD of a recording of a, of a doctor named Roland Sharp, who was a beloved uh, physician down there, and uh, he talked about spending. You know, most of his time talking to people, um, and that he considered his primary job. He did treat them if he, they needed it, but uh, he was definitely an old school doctor. And and I think even if a doctor wanted to do that now, he, they would f- have a difficult time uh, pulling it off in the um, economic and cultural environment that that uh, medicine finds itself in at this point. Um. Yeah. The the person often uh, knows more about their uh, disease uh, than they are aware. Uh, For example, uh, their dreams will often uh, predict uh, some uh, sickness that's about to come to to full awareness. Mm. Uh, Just on the edge of awareness, if if a person is a good listener, uh, sometimes they can draw out information that the person wasn't fully aware of. Yeah. Um, now, I just had somebody call, uh, uh, Bill, I think, from down in New Zealand, and I tried to accept his call while you were talking, and it didn't actually work. Um, it put you on hold, Ray, so uh, we couldn't hear you for a second. So... Um, when that, if uh, Bill, if you want to call in again, or maybe he's there, let me tr- let me just try to bring him up, okay. and see if see if I can make this work. Can you can you hear me, Ray? 
Oh, uh, yeah, I can hear you. Okay, why don't you go ahead with your question, Bill? Yeah, I thought you ought to have a call from 10,000 miles away, you know. I was fascinated, Ray, with the opening about you're advocating for matter to have the same kind of perhaps life, but anyway, at least uh, intelligence as us human species. And um, what what I'm doing here is just suggesting, isn't it interesting that we are willing to attribute intelligence to non-material beings like spirits, but not to matter? Thank you so much for being part of MRW. Okay, well, thank you, Bill, and thanks for your call. And I would suggest uh, for everybody calling in that if this echo persists, that while you're talking, you turn down your volume on your own computer so that you don't have to listen to the uh, your voice coming back to you. Always a problem with phone interfaces. But, Ray, can you still hear me? Uh, yeah, fine. Did you uh, hear Bill? Uh, yeah. Um, oh, good. Uh, the, the, uh, I think the... Uh, attitude towards matter that uh, exists still throughout the medical uh, profession and uh, biology in general uh, is basically a religious belief about matter. It, it is something very separate from science. It, it's a religious exclusion of uh, spirit, mind, and intelligence from whatever they consider matter. And, and so uh, an organ or an organism or uh, a material object uh, can't uh, have uh, in itself uh, mentality, uh, spirit, intelligence, uh, and so on, and um, hardly uh, d- deserves uh, to be called uh, alive uh, it, it's uh, not at all a scientific issue uh, when I was I think about 8 or 9 years old in an encyclopedia I read about J.C. Bose's uh, biological experiments right around the turn of, of the last century and uh, he uh, coming from the Hindu uh, tradition didn't have the uh, any of the the Christian Jewish um, Muslim attitude towards uh, matter life and and uh, human intelligence and uh, his uh, Hindu background apparently uh, gave him uh, the, the perspective to ask uh, what what uh, lifelike properties uh, exist in the different levels of organization. And uh, so he defined... Hello? Dr. Ray Pete. Hi, Ray. Sorry, I dropped out. I don't know Don't know why. Uh, Bose uh, asked, what are the defining features of human life? And uh, uh, listed... Uh, some of the properties of uh, sensitivity and uh, uh, reactivity and so on uh, that uh, are standard uh, terms for, for um, 
uh, human life and uh, then uh, did tests on uh, plants uh, to uh, see if they had any of these animal-like or human uh, sensitive properties. And uh, uh, he showed that uh, uh, plants showed uh, a reactive physical uh, response to practically any uh, stimulation, especially harmful stimulation. And uh, he then, uh, after the, uh, designing instruments that would uh, record in a very uh, clear way the, the reactions of plant tissue to stimulation, uh, he applied the same thing to uh, objects such as metal and uh, minerals and and showed the same uh, properties of sensitivity, reaction, learning, or adaptation uh, uh, applied uh, to all of the levels of existence, uh, mineral, uh, plant, animal, as well as human. And uh, that didn't... Uh, didn't fit into the the way uh, Western nerve biology was developing, uh, but but um, scientifically it uh, was actually you know, uh, more soundly based than than the way the uh, English and French and German uh, biologists were thinking about how nerves work. Mm. And. Uh fact that we can thank uh, Bose uh, for inventing the radio, basically. Marconi, I guess, according to what you've said, uh, got his basic ideas for uh, inventing the actuality of radio from uh, Bose himself. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, and it was exactly the same kind of physical thinking about the sensitivity of of material uh, that that led to the invention of the radio as to the explanation of nerve function mm. and, and muscle function. Yeah, that that is fascinating. So uh, thank you, Bill, for that call, and sorry for the technical problems. Uh, so, Ray, maybe I'll f- f- just follow up. W- w- was that the l- your only experience with the doctor as a child, was uh, the naturopath? Oh, um uh, no, I had uh, uh, oh, um, one one doctor gave me probably almost a, a lethal dose of radiation by fluoroscoping me. Ah. <laughs> How old were you then? Uh, five, I think. Ah, was there any purpose uh, given for enter- the entertaining the doctor and impressing the the patients? Ah, uh, that that was a very popular toy around 1940 or so. And it was in a doctor's office. Yeah. I, I didn't realize you'd been subjected to that. That's that's terrible. Um, a fluoroscope, for people who don't know, is basically an x-ray machine. That, But they used to have them in shoe stores, right, Ray? Yeah. You could get your feet uh, x-rayed. Yeah. Uh, kids would, would go in and look at their feet, bones. Yeah, and that's... Uh, the use of technology as a 
as novelty, even though many people did know that x-rays cause cumulative and very harmful damage. I think Thomas Edison was completely against the use of uh, radioactive technology, wasn't he? Um, Yeah, he was one of the um, pioneers in in designing the apparatus and such, but his uh, main uh, technician uh, died horribly from uh, exposure to it, and that uh, changed Edison's attitude towards towards the uh, use of it in medicine. Mm. And did that that must have uh, fueled some of your skepticism toward the medical profession after you found out that it wasn't exactly a healthy thing to do? <laughs> when did you realize um, it wasn't a good idea? Uh, 1945 and 1946, I was uh, re- I think because of the atomic bomb, uh, I started reading about radiation. And uh, uh, it it was already uh, in the underground culture, uh, the biological effects of medical x-rays was already uh, coming out uh, as a very unwise uh, thing to do. But uh, the medical profession was hardly getting started. Uh, They had killed many people by uh, bad apparatus and and bad theories and such in the 1930s. That was probably uh, a a major uh, year for radiation deaths, but uh, people that I knew in college and later uh, were still getting uh, horrible x-ray treatment for their uh, acne or ringworm, uh, they would get their heads x-rayed for ringworm and their face x-rayed. And uh, people that I knew in college about 10 years after they had had uh, the treatment for uh, acne, for example, uh, some of their uh, skulls had begun collapsing, their sinuses collapsed uh, so that their faces were deformed. Um, that was still being done in the 1950s. And uh, I remember uh, hearing about uh, the English woman, Alice uh, Stewart. Stewart, Stewart. Uh, her study uh, showing that x raying pregnant women uh, caused leukemia in the babies. Uh, that, that just wasn't acceptable by the medical profession. Um, but that was uh, one of the uh, first things that actually got into the medical journals at all, even though it, it didn't uh, have much weight with most doctors. Hmm. So that was that happened when you were five. Uh, uh, is that right? No. Um, the fluoroscope experience, but I, I started reading. Oh, I uh, see. Around 1945 and 46, about the effects of radiation. So, uh, I was very interested when Alice Stewart's uh, work came out, mm. because it, it had been it had been just an underground fringe opinion uh, in those uh, 10 or 15 years before her work. It was almost so, was it unpatriotic to to uh, be against the uh, technology of radiation? Um, uh, 
that really uh, didn't get uh, started as a political issue until I think the later 50s. Uh, it, it became uh, just uh, a, a very dangerous thing uh, mm -hmm. for any academic person to uh, criticize either x-rays or uh, atmospheric atomic bomb tests. Mm. Uh, if, if you uh, said that they were killing people in in Utah by the fallout uh, from the bombs, uh, you were uh, probably a communist and a pervert. Uh, people uh, who worked for the government uh, immediately would lose their jobs and uh, uh, be smeared by by some morals charge or political affiliation. Uh, John Goffman was one of the main government uh, propagandists in favor of continuing uh, bomb tests. So I considered him uh, sort of a, a government demon all through the uh, 50s. Uh, and later, I, I think it was in the late 1960s that he... Uh, later said he was giving a speech defending atmospheric bomb testing because there had been no evidence that it caused uh, mutations and death in in subsequent generations. Mm. And he said while he was saying that, he realized that it was a crazy uh, thing to be doing. Yeah. He simply changed suddenly from being... The, the government's biggest propagandist to... Oh, sorry, Ray, just a second. Um, hello? Hello, uh, you're on the air here at WMRW with uh, Dr. Ray Pete. Oh, yes, Dr. Pete, my name's George, I'm from Miami, and I've got a, a two-part question. Uh, I was wondering I could pose the first part, which um, I wanted to see if, if you're trying to turn off um, stress hormones, should you err on the possibility of overeating until you're stable with tense and pulses? Um, well, the, uh, sugar is, is the single most uh, immediately effective uh, food for stopping stress. Uh, sometimes salt. Uh, so uh, uh, a food with mixed components but including uh, enough sodium and and glucose or fructose uh, will uh, stop some of the worst uh, stress hormones. Okay, that that helps. Here, I'll ask the the second part. So, would losing excess weight, in fact, help you gain that stability because of reduced body fat? Um, if you um, lose too fast. Uh, that uh, is going to cause uh, damage by uh, uh, oxidative uh, decomposition of, of the unsaturated fats as, as they're being oxidized at a higher rate. Uh, so, so I think uh, slow weight loss is the best thing. And uh, having enough protein and minerals in your diet during weight loss uh, can make a tremendous difference in the amount of stress. Uh, when a person uh, goes on a complete fast for a week or two, 
uh, they lose very little fat, but uh, a lot of protein and uh, functioning tissue. But if they eat about a thousand calorie diet for the average person, uh, they can lose almost entirely fat uh, and almost no uh, good proteiny tissue. Uh, so uh, uh, the minerals uh, as well as the protein are are very important to uh, reduce the uh, stress hormones, which will take down your good tissues when you're losing weight. Okay. Okay. Well, well, thank you. I uh, really pre- appreciate it, Dr. Pete, and, and thank you very much to the host, uh, John, I believe, yes? Yeah. That's right. Okay. Thank you, thank you for calling. Okay. Take care. Yeah, take care. I have an, another question from somebody uh, related to hormones, Ray. Uh, this is from Priscilla, and she's asking, uh, can you refer me to a source of information about the workings of hormones in the body? It seems any mention of them is laughed off as having to do with sex or anxiety. I'm thinking there's more involved with hormones than just that. Um, yeah, and the uh, definition of hormone has uh, changed a lot, but in the last uh, 30 or 40 years, uh, so that uh, the classical definitions hardly apply anymore. Uh, things have uh, become a lot subtler and, and more complicated, but uh, it's good to look at, at one of the classical uh, textbooks of endocrinology just to, to see the framework of uh, even how complex it was uh, 50 or 100 years ago. Uh, but uh, one of the um, good textbooks uh, from about uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago would be Constance Martin. Uh, I think it was just called the Textbook of of, uh, Endocrinology. Okay. Constance Uh, Martin, uh, Textbook of Endocrinology? Yeah, and um, uh, Hans Selye, when you want to uh, look at at some of the uh, ways uh, science uh, preceded medical understanding. Hans Selye uh, d- did something called the um, Encyclopedia of Endocrinology in the 1940s, and his work uh, was very influential for my thinking on on endocrinology. Uh, he he very early uh, showed the dangers of estrogen and and the protective effects of progesterone and uh, pregnenolone. And uh, if if the medical uh, industry had had really paid attention, uh, the, the country would have been uh, much healthier now. Hmm. Let's see. Uh, it's uh, 4.43 here on the East Coast, and you're listening to Politics and Science. And my guest today is Dr. Raymond Pete, who uh, has a Ph.D. in biology and a speci- speciality in physiology, and in my opinion is one of the most uh, comprehensive science historians I've ever spoken to. So if you have a question about science 
or health, uh, we're welcoming you. If I can make this uh, phone system, Skype phone system work, uh, we will definitely welcome you to the airwaves. Um, Ray, what was the next doctor experience you had after um, after uh, the uh, f- the fluoroscope and the the the, the uh, naturopath at age ten? Oh, um, I I stayed away from uh, doctors after, after that. that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but uh, because of lesson. my uh, my experience with migraine when I was uh, nine or ten, I started getting nearsighted. And uh, I I noticed that the only other uh, kids in my school who were nearsighted uh, were girls, and uh, a couple of them uh, also were, were migrainers. And that got me thinking: uh, why why are more girls uh, nearsighted and subject to migraine headaches? Uh, uh, so that uh, started me looking in general at uh, uh, people in terms of their their hormones and their health uh, symptoms and such. Uh, so I was already thinking along the lines of uh, uh, the uh, uh, suppressive effects of uh, estrogen on uh, metabolism, blood sugar regulation, and thyroid function. Uh, in, in my early teens, uh, I, I discovered that uh, a change in my eating rhythm uh, would invariably uh, trigger a migraine. If I uh, was very active physically on a Saturday, for example, uh, that night or the next morning, I would develop a migraine uh, just because I had uh, drawn down my uh, glycogen supplies hadn't replenished them by eating them fast hmm. enough. Interesting. And yeah, that, oh, go ahead. After thinking about that for years, I, I finally realized that I could intervene even if I had waited until a headache was actually started. It happened that I had a couple quarts of ice cream in, in the fridge and realizing that I hadn't been eating enough, I ate a quart of ice cream as fast as I could when the blind spots were already uh, starting to flash and found that they turned right off uh, as, as I absorbed the ice cream. Uh, so uh, for uh, two or three years, that was my uh, intervention, uh, always having some ice cream on hand. And you didn't. Just, you did, you uh, didn't switch to uh, um, ice cream headaches instead. <laughs> uh, no, those, those are very minor. Okay, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. You were saying something when I did that. Um, uh, well, uh, several other things added to that. Uh, uh, someone told me about eating a raw carrot being a way to interrupt a, a headache. And I found that that worked too. So I I would do that every day and not have to uh, worry about keeping ice cream uh, handy. And uh, I had uh, read uh, some of the uh, books of a, a famous gastroenterologist uh, 
uh, Walter Alvarez. He was one of one of the newspaper uh, doctor columnists, uh, but he was a, a very uh, imaginative uh, enterologist, and uh, uh, he found that the intestine was uh, involved in uh, a very high percentage of headaches. Uh, he he wanted to disprove the idea that headaches are caused by toxins. He believed they were caused by pressure in the intestine. And uh, so to to demonstrate, uh, supposedly to disprove the toxin theory, he stuffed some of his medical students' rectums with uh, wads of cotton, and about half of them developed headaches. And uh, so he said, see, it's pressure, not toxins. But uh, he didn't actually test whether uh, toxins could do it too. I see. Uh, but, uh, well, uh, other researchers uh, were working on the intestine, uh, both with toxins and uh, uh, pressure. Uh, Russian researchers, for example, would put a an inflatable balloon in the intestine, and uh, uh, when they would blow up the balloon, uh, if the rabbit was in normal normal health, nothing would happen. But if the rabbit had low blood sugar, uh, blowing up the balloon would cause all kinds of uh, symptoms, including uh, epileptic seizures. And and other researchers uh, found that uh, an allergen or a chemical irritant would cause that whole range of uh, uh, anything from seizures to uh, shock if their blood sugar was low, but if the blood sugar was high, chemical irritants had almost no effect biologically. So that's so, how the ice ice cream was working to yeah. protect you with sugar. Yeah, uh, and the carrot would uh, apparently uh, do multiple things: um, absorb uh, toxins or speed along the elimination of toxins and prevent pressure and uh, chemical irritation. Uh, so you could work on either side of it, keeping the blood sugar up or eliminating or reducing the irritation to the intestine. That's uh, very interesting. Um, I have a lot more questions here from people that I should probably get to before the next hour whizzes by and we're done. Um, but I forgot to, when and saying people could call, I forgot to give out the number, and that's 802-526-2326. That's 802 526 Two three two six. That's if you have a phone. That's my Skype number. And if you're on a computer, you can Skype John Barkhausen, all one word. And if I can figure out the Skype system, I will bring you up on the air with Dr. Ray Pete, who's on the line right now from Eugene, Oregon. So the um, just getting back to my uh, loose theme here of indicators of health. At some point, uh, blood tests began to be used extensively uh, in, by the medical profession. When when did that start? Um, my awareness of it started around uh, the late 1940s uh, when uh, some of my fat uh, friends in school uh, told me that uh, 
they they had previously been told that they had a glandular problem and had been given thyroid, but uh, with the new uh, medical science in the late 40s, uh, they discovered that they were just gluttons and ate too much. They had no hormone problems because their blood test, uh, they had given a test called uh, uh, protein-bound iodine. That was the scientific thing in the late 40s and all through the 50s into the 60s. Uh, and if your protein-bound iodine was okay, you just had the psychological problem of eating too much. So where about half of the people who went to the doctors with overweight uh, would get a thyroid prescription and cure their problem uh, after science intervened with a blood test, 95% of those people, uh, well, 95% of the population, so uh, about uh, half of the uh, people who had been on thyroid were told that they were perfectly normal hormonally and uh, taken off thyroid. And uh, at that same time, uh, synthetic uh, thyroxin was introduced and uh, it was tested on medical students who at that time were all uh, young men in their early 20s. And uh, when they were given a dose of uh, uh, synthetic thyroxin, it worked just exactly the same as a dose of armor thyroid had worked. Uh, so uh, this, the, the chemical pharmaceutical industry displaced the uh, the meat industry-based uh, armor product uh, because it was more scientific and exact. It was a single hormone rather than a, a dehydrated gland. Mm. And com combined with uh, the um, uh, protein-bound iodine blood test, <laughs> that really ruined the health of the country uh, by... Uh, failing to give thyroid to nearly everyone who needed it. And uh, when they did need it, uh, they would prescribe the uh, 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 synthetic form. And they neglected to uh, notice that most thyroid patients were women, uh, a ratio of five or ten times uh, to, to the incidence in men. Uh, and that women... Uh, especially if their thyroid is, is low, uh, their livers are much more sluggish than men's. Uh, it's easier for a woman, especially in the premenstrual time, uh, to get drunk on a small amount of alcohol because the liver throws it off uh, so slowly. And the same with aspirin and other drugs. Women are more sensitive because the liver is slowed down by estrogen, which also... Uh, contributes uh, to the, to the problem of, of hyper hypothyroidism, and uh, in women, it neglected to test the comparison between Armour thyroid and synthetic thyroxin. But uh, it happens that w when the liver is very sluggish, uh, the um, thyroxin isn't turned to the active hormone, but it does. Uh, suppress the pituitary. The pituitary senses that, that there is uh, the presence of 
of uh, thyroid hormone and stop stimulating the gland so it, uh, if the liver isn't converting it to the active hormone, the gland is going to uh, decrease its production because the T4 is, uh, thyroxine is accumulating. Uh, so uh, the um, frequent uh, event throughout the 1950s and 60s uh, was that women would actually be made worse by uh, turning off their remaining thyroid function uh, by dosing them with this synthetic uh, inappropriate drug, which, which had been uh, tested on young, healthy men who, whose livers were uh, able to uh, turn into the active hormone. So that's a case of them doing the, uh, the the tests, but interpreting them in such a way that it actually didn't help the health of the patient. Um, yeah, and um, during this time, the um, the protein bound iodine test uh, showed that very few people in in any any population, only five percent, uh, tested uh, low, uh, which they. Uh, thought meant low thyroid function, but then as new tests became possible in the 60s uh, using immune uh, techniques, uh, they found that the protein-bound iodine test had nothing to do with thyroid function. Uh, So the, uh, the concept had been built into the profession that only 5% of people are really biologically lacking thyroid function. So they devised new tests and standardized the new test on the same population uh, uh, framework that the uh, meaningless test had created. So now they said, uh, we know that 5% of the people are going to be hypothyroid, so let's adjust our new sensitive tests to fit that old concept. And ever since then, <laughs> that has been, no matter how sensitive your measurement of uh, any of the thyroid functions can get, if they're stuck on the idea that the normal uh, range uh, is is going to be covered by 95% of the results, they, they stretch whatever uh, fine test they might develop to fit a bad definition of normal. Mm. Yeah, it's like they didn't bother to figure out what healthy means before they decided what the range for a healthy thyroid is. Uh, that apparently never occurred even at the time when they were telling people that they were gluttons rather than uh, deficient in thyroid. Uh, the, the test completely knocked out uh, meaning and sense from diagnosis and treatment. And is that, do you think, Ray, that's because the pharmaceuticals and money got involved, or is it just they took a wrong turn somewhere and, and never looked back? Oh, oh yeah, the, uh, the drug industry uh, controls the world. Uh, it was obvious in the way both the... Uh, the protein-bound iodine test and the synthetic uh, thyroxin, uh, how they uh, took over the mind of medicine. Uh, 
and Carla uh, uh, Rothenberg, uh, who was uh, a law student at Harvard, wrote a very good uh, paper on the history of the estrogen industry uh, during those same years, uh, early 1940s, uh, showed that uh, the industry didn't like the way science was going, which was showing that estrogen was uh, uh, able to create abortions and uh, uh, produce cancer, inflammation, degeneration, uh, all sorts of bad things. But uh, uh, they uh, had products that could be made cheaply, and uh, uh, they decided with a conspiracy of, I think it was 12 or 13 big corporations with an estrogen product, uh, they decided to uh, get the FDA in line and uh, uh, get the, the population in line with uh, uh, mass media, uh, public relations, and uh, journal articles, and uh, uh, pressure on the FDA uh, to um, sell the idea that estrogen was a fertility-promoting medicine rather than a sterility promoter. Uh, and uh, so starting right in 1942, uh, science was turned on its head for basically uh, about 60 years. Uh, that's uh, unfortunate, uh, but fascinating still. Uh, and I have to say right now that this is WMRW LP Warren, and you're listening to a live edition of Politics and Science with Dr. Raymond Pete on the line. He's a physiologist, uh, PhD in biology, uh, and a science historian from Eugene, Oregon. And we're accepting questions uh, on the air. Uh, if you call 802-526-2326, questions about science or medicine or philosophy. And you can also email info at wmrw.org uh, if you'd like to send an email question. And I should get to some of these email questions uh, before we run out of time. So let me see. Uh, Paul has sent a question. Uh, By reducing conflict with others and within one's own mind and thereby lowering stress hormones, can kindness, generosity, and ethical conduct thereby promote healthy metabolism? Yes, I think so. Okay. Um, and he has a follow-up. Do you ever recommend meditation? Why or why not? Um, uh, meditation in the sense of uh, watching your own consciousness, uh, uh, being mindful of your body and of uh, the world in general and how they interact uh, I think everyone should always be doing that. Hmm. Practicing awareness. Uh, yeah, uh, and uh, especially uh, the interactions, uh, uh, so that you you can see what your needs are and not confuse them with what's really happening in reality uh, by being aware. Uh, of yourself and the world, you you can uh, avoid confusing uh, the two. Mm. 
Um, you've often, or I don't know if, if it's you who said it originally, I think other people have said this, that uh, we don't actually end where our skin ends, uh, that we are all all part of the environment around us. Uh, and so how do you... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, when I was uh, working on linguistics, uh, I realized that uh, uh, people are really uh, participating. They're inside each other's minds. Uh, uh, the way uh, language works, uh, the, the um, uh, Russian physiologist, uh, uh, one of uh, uh, Pavlov's uh, students, uh, devised a way of explaining how reflexes work in terms of uh, what he called the acceptor of action, uh, which is essentially a model of the world uh, that is uh, built in our consciousness. And uh, we we adjust that uh, according to the, the results of our senses and interaction with the world. Uh, and... Uh, uh, that's that's our um, our mind, our intention, and and our uh, uh, knowledge. Uh, it, it stores everything that we have learned, uh, and uh, it, it completely changes the idea of what a, a reflex and and a, a sense is. And then uh, Paul has another question, and this probably enters primarily into the world of politics, although I suppose uh, forensic science uh, is part of this, and logic. Uh, do you consider the U.S. government's explanation for the destruction of the World Trade Center towers on 9-11-2001 plausible? And if not, what explanations do you consider most plausible? Um. No, I, I don't. I haven't heard anything from any government official that makes sense, uh, and um, I, I think there are quite a few uh, possible explanations that uh, any of, of several of them are more plausible than the government story. Hmm. All right, and. Uh See, I'm just going to keep running. Paul gave me five questions. They're all good ones. So, uh, can you please discuss the functions of the hormone oxytocin and its relationship, if any, with metabolism? Um, uh, it's um, uh, one of one of the uh, uh, adaptive hormones, but it, it has some uh, stress-related responses. So, uh, I, I don't see it as as the uh, happiness. And uh, uh, euphoria hormone—it's—it's—it uh, can go up under stress too, mm. and its effects aren't all all good. Uh, it's sort of like the uh, the parasympathetic uh, system is is a good relief to the sympathetic and anxiety-related uh, system, but you don't want to go too far in that direction. It, it's a matter of having it at the right time and in balance. I see. It's a, there are many hormones like that, right? They're key in, um, at certain times, but you only you want to stop them and not let them uh, go on. Um, yeah, and definitely that's the case with with those 
uh, pituitary hormones. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, all of the pituitary hormones are uh, pretty expendable uh, as long as you keep your thyroid working. Uh, uh, several researchers uh, removed pituitaries and, and gave uh, thyroid, sometimes uh, cortisol, uh, and found that the animals were healthier without their pituitaries, and and so they were losing their oxytocin, and uh, uh, all of the pituitary hormones went when they removed the gland. But the animals, if if they were given uh, thyroid, could live even longer than normal. Hmm. Wow. Um, another question here. In your books and interviews, you often provide examples of people who recovered quickly from serious health problems by changing their diets or supplementing with pro-metabolic substances such as thyroid or progesterone. While these examples can be very inspiring, at times they can be somewhat dispiriting to people who have struggled with health problems for a long time and do not respond quickly to similar changes in diet or supplements. Can you offer any anecdotes about slow, gradual healing that may comfort or inspire such people? Um, it, when, when it isn't instantaneous, uh, if you, you keep working on it, it, it tends to be gradual. Uh, when you are lucky and hit the missing thing uh, on the first try, uh, you can see uh, things in, in an hour or less uh, go from miserable to perfect, but uh, if you don't happen to hit on the one missing factor, then uh, it, it can involve uh, a very slow uh, repair of, of many systems. Uh, sometimes, uh, for example, a person will, will supplement uh, progesterone and feel that everything is perfect, but then uh, they hit another point in the monthly cycle and things uh, go out of balance. And uh, often they have to go through two or three of those monthly phases, uh, even when they're uh, on exactly the right track. Uh, the body uh, changes so drastically, uh, cyclically, uh, that uh, it goes through repair phases uh, during those cycles. And uh, when, when it's other things, uh, other than a simple uh, cyclic progesterone or thyroid function, uh, it can uh, take a, a slow repair process. Uh, for example, bones uh, can, can take quite a while to repair, but I've seen uh, people with uh, crippling arthritis uh, immediately uh, and Overnight or within an hour, sometimes uh, their joint uh, becomes painless and and works where it had been uh, crunching and popping. Hmm. Um, so another question here: um, Somebody wants uh, Sean wants to know uh, what are your plans for the next five or ten years? Are you planning on any new books or research uh, or lectures? Continue to write newsletters. Anything specific? Oh, I, as far as I know, I expect to uh, keep writing newsletters, and I've uh, got some ideas for books, but uh, uh, as I discover 
new things. Uh, my idea of what what a good book uh, should be changes. Uh, currently, I've been thinking about the uh, importance of carbon monoxide in in our endogenous uh, regulatory processes. Dioxide or monoxide? Uh, Monoxide. Oh. Uh, for for about twenty years, I've been uh, talking about the uh, importance of keeping your carbon dioxide up. But one of one of the things uh, that everything I've been talking about, uh, getting enough bright light, uh, thyroid, drinking coffee, eating fruit, and uh, keeping your carbon dioxide up. One thing that is acted on in the same direction by all of those is carbon monoxide. And when we're under stress, we produce that. And uh, these these uh, helpful uh, factors uh, help to get rid of it or to decrease its its production under under stress. And um, when, when the stress is simply enough uh, for example, the monthly cycles or the daily cycles that cause our pituitary to uh, become active uh, cyclically more or less. Uh, the ups and downs of, of uh, ACTH and thyroid-stimulating hormone and oxytocin and so on. Uh, all of the pituitary hormones are acting at least partly by by way of Increasing carbon monoxide production where they're uh, acting on the gland or end tissue. And uh, that seems to be one of the reasons why removing the pituitary gland in these experimental animals had such beneficial effects because of the harmful uh, age advancing uh, effects of the endogenous carbon monoxide. Wow, yeah, and I was just driving around in my plow truck uh, that has a terrible carbon monoxide problem and the window's wide open and trying to... Uh, so it it sounds like it's it's uh, dangerous from outside sources as well as inside. Um, yeah, the, uh, the outside adds to what's going on on the inside. So if someone has a, a tendency to uh, liver disease or, or seizures or, or such, uh, any little... Uh, fluctuation, like uh, going downtown uh, where the carbon monoxide might be illegal uh, 20 or 30 parts per million, uh, that could be enough to um, seriously uh, bring on your symptoms. Even if you're only there for half an hour? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's a trigger. Uh, Yeah. Uh, When I I used to drive a lot uh, through uh, downtown Los Angeles or uh, uh, Seattle, uh, I would uh, tend to get lost on the days when the carbon monoxide was up around 50 parts per million. Hmm. I, I, if I if I got out of my lane, uh, I would uh, have a hard time finding where I was supposed to go. Yeah. Um. <laughs> That's terrible, Ray. Uh, let's see. Uh, I should mention also that uh, this is a special we're doing here on Politics and Science Today with Dr. Raymond Pete, And uh, it's a special because we're having a fundraiser 
our February fundraiser. It's the only one we do on air so far all year round. Uh, we have a very small budget. It's only twelve grand, uh, but we do need to make it up uh, to keep broadcasting all year. So anybody who has any uh, money they can throw our way, it's uh, greatly appreciated and it's easy to do. You just go to our website, wmrw.org, and click the pig to make a PayPal or credit card donation. And it's a tax-deductible donation because we're a nonprofit. And on top of that, there's nobody here getting paid. So every every dollar or penny you uh, contribute goes directly to our operating expenses. And thank you, everybody, for all your donations. That's, we do appreciate it. And we've had some in, in your honor today, Ray. So you'll be glad to hear. So very much appreciate you coming on today. Um, I have a question here from Wade. And he's asking uh, why certain diseases present as they do. Uh, why does someone develop Alzheimer's while another gets uh, multiple sclerosis or some other pattern of degenerative disease when the basic premise is a failure of energy? What determines the disease course that a person takes? Um, the uh, health of your other organs influences the uh the shape of the deterioration of your your nervous system, um, the uh, amount of uh, clotting uh, material, for example, uh, is probably higher or um, uh, at least more unstable in multiple sclerosis. Uh, uh, they, they find uh, clots tend to um, uh, associate with uh, uh, the uh, plaques or, or the um, uh, the inflamed areas in multiple sclerosis, and uh, the uh, the clotting of fibrin deposits aren't the um, factor in Alzheimer's uh, plaques, but it uh, does relate to the clotting system. And uh, some people think that the amyloid, which forms the plaque, a particular kind of of protein, uh, they think that the brain is producing that uh, to make up for the uh, leakiness of the capillaries in in Alzheimer's disease, where it's sort of the opposite process in multiple sclerosis, where the the, um, the clot seems to start the process. Uh, the fibrin deposits breaks down, releases inflammatory material and uh, uh, starts an inflammation uh, in that uh, uh, clotted area. Where with Alzheimer's, the the capillaries get leaky, uh, produce a microhemorrhage, some heme or hemoglobin uh, leaks out, and uh, an enzyme that uh, clears away the uh, heme or hemoglobin is the enzyme that forms carbon monoxide. And uh, this enzyme is known to be associated with the amyloid plaques. Uh, So it's it's, uh, basically a a blood vessel uh, leaky uh, problem being being handled in opposite, from opposite sides. And uh, uh, each type of degeneration uh, has its own... uh, ways of uh, working, uh, uh, trying to correct a problem and failing to do it. Uh, a, a cancer develops uh, 
possibly starting with the same leakage of blood vessels and hemoglobin, uh, possibly leading to uh, increased deposition of connective tissue and collagen, uh, producing an atrophied area, uh, and within that area of atrophy, uh, cells can uh, convert themselves to uh, live without the ordinary support of the environment because of, of the deranged uh, connective tissue uh, that chronic stress and irritation uh, has produced. Uh, so uh, you, you get the same uh, elements involved, but in different ways. Uh, atrophy, uh, uh, malfunction, tumor, tumor formation, uh, invasive cancer, and so on, uh, all are, are cells trying to uh, uh, correct a problem but not having uh, enough energy to do it fully and properly. Hmm. And we so often hear from the medical uh, professionals and from the media, who seem to magnify what they say, uh, that uh, genetics is what determines whether you get a disease or not. That must have some play in which way uh, disease manifests itself, doesn't it? Um, yeah, the, the, um, everyone has genes, so genetics explains everything. <laughs> but uh, uh, the, the way they prove that certain mutations are responsible, uh, they uh, just haven't uh, ever made a convincing case um, because first you have to define uh, what the normal population's genes are. And it turns out that uh, usually about half of the people with the disease uh, uh, might have genes that contribute to it. Others don't. And uh, uh, a large proportion of perfectly healthy people have a fully mutated set of genes. And uh, uh, Harry Rubin has pointed out, uh, he was a, a biology professor at uh, UC Berkeley, uh, he uh, pointed out that uh, very highly mutated uh, cells can have dozens of uh, cancer-promoting mutations. Uh, these cells, as long as they're in a, a basically healthy organism, don't produce cancer. It's the, uh, the failure of the organism's support system uh, interacting, but, but basically it's the, uh, the the organism problem starting first, uh, then mutations occur because of the uh, stress on the tissue because of the failure of the organism's support system. I see. So you may have a propensity inherited from an environmental exposure that your uh, predecessor had, but uh, the environment uh, can also heal that if you if it gives you enough energy. Um, yeah, and and there is a sort of momentum in in the whole physiological pattern that can pass on from generation to generation in uh, a way of expressing the genes. Uh, so even the definition of of what a genetic defect is has changed radically. Uh, the the influence of the environment on the parent 
can affect the uh, methylation uh, of the genes, and that can affect their tendency to be expressed or not. Uh, so it's it's like a, a weight or an influence that can accumulate generation to generation uh, and make it harder for a, a given uh, individual to correct it. But still, it's it's uh, only a tendency of the gene to express or not. Yeah. Um, well, it's, we're running out of time here, actually. Um, we have another 35 minutes to go, but it's going by very fast, so I'm just going to keep doing these questions. As, as more are coming in by email, you can email them to politicsandscience uh, at madriver.com, but probably the easiest at this point is info at wmrw.org. I'll get those, too. So info at wmrw.org if you want to email in a question right now. Um, and here's the next one. Um, as your work increases in popularity, uh, people are quoting you more and more in an authoritarian context uh, in discussion groups on the Internet, I think, uh, to the degree that if you haven't said something or written it, then other sources of input can't possibly have validity as well. Um, how do you want to be seen? Uh, how do you, I'm paraphrasing here because it has the wrong pronouns, but how do you and your work want to be seen? Are you a teacher? Uh, teacher is an overused word that is losing meaning within the public school system frame of reference. So can you define that word in terms of how you would like it used? Well, as a, as a teacher, in the, even in, in the state university or well-defined uh, setting, uh, when I was assigned to teach a, a course that had a description in the, the university catalog, uh, I would read the description of the course and uh, see what textbooks were being used to teach the course, and uh, then staying within the uh, uh, abstract definition of what the course was supposed to cover, I would basically criticize the textbooks that were available and were being used. So if the students were required to uh, buy a textbook, I would fairly carefully uh, demolish the, the textbook as far as I could. Um, so I think a, a teacher's function should be essentially criticism of of the cultural stereotypes that the, the students are confronted with, and and showing the, the student what how to go about criticizing the things that that they are going to be constantly confronted with. I see. So you're basically teaching by example. I, yeah, I guess. Um, all right, I like that. Uh, now, here's a specific question about health. Um, let's see, is it useful to compare the basal metabolic rate or the resting metabolic rate to the daily caloric intake in order to gauge uh, one's metabolic rate? Um, yeah, that. Um, there are many ways you can do it. Uh, uh, the and, 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 and why would you do that, Ray? Just for everybody else who's listening. Oh well, the uh, the more alive you are, uh, the more energy is running through you. Uh, 
when an egg is fertilized, it, it uh, uh, as soon as it gets itself going, it starts uh, a tremendous increase in oxygen consumption. And uh, uh, from then until, if, if you measure the oxygen per uh, gram of, of weight, uh, uh, the, um, the oxygen consumption uh, decreases for the rest of your life. Uh, from puberty to old age, oxygen consumption decreases by about 70% unless you uh, intervene with uh, uh, controlling the uh, inflammatory hormones and, and supporting thyroid function. And uh, the uh, mortality, uh, when the uh, uh, hormones change at, at puberty, uh, the, the incidence, of the likelihood of dying in, increase, increases steadily from puberty on. Uh, and uh, that corresponds to the decrease of um, ability to consume oxygen, burn energy. And uh, that's basically because of the uh, uh, structure building uh, influence of the flow of energy through matter. It's exactly what uh, J.C. Bose <laughs> was was talking about. The uh, matter flows through, uh, uh, energy flows through all matter, but it, it does it more complicatedly uh, through uh, higher organisms. But it's, it's basically the same process that the he uh, used in making his radio receiver uh, the, the way the uh, matter responded to the fields around it uh, determined the, the way the energy flowed through it. Yeah. So what Sandy's asking here, is it useful to compare the basal metabolic rate or resting metabolic rate to the daily caloric intake in order to get a, a full picture of the metabolic rate? Is that... Um yeah, if if you can uh, put a person in a in a container and measure the heat being produced, that's one way of doing it. Or you can measure the amount of oxygen consumed, or the amount of carbon dioxide produced, or uh, over a period of time, uh, just the amount of food that disappears and is turned into carbon dioxide. You can weigh the food that's being converted or the, the gases that are being uh, produced or consumed. Or you can uh, measure the amount of water that you evaporate because that's an index of how much heat you're producing. And so you can, if you measure all the fluids you take in for 24 hours and subtract the amount of urine produced, uh, the missing water is how much you've evaporated, and and so that's a, a way of it's like doing calorimetry indirectly. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And then I suppose you'd have to compare yourself to somebody who was considered healthy. Um. Yeah. Uh, the famous uh, G. W. Kyle and his wife uh, went around the world with <laughs> a basal metabolic. Uh, apparatus, and they found that everyone uh, 
in very different cultures, from the Eskimos to uh, tropical uh, people in in Africa and, and Central America, uh, their basal metabolic rates were about thirty percent higher than the average Americans, hmm. and and uh, their diets were tremendously different. Uh, mostly uh, meat in in the uh, Eskimos in a cold environment and uh, uh, mostly uh, uh, starchy foods in the tropics uh, in in a very hot environment, but still they were metabolizing, burning uh, about 30% more oxygen than the average American. And uh, that uh, he he took to be an indication of uh, a very generalized hypothyroidism. Um, he, he saw a correspondence of uh, brain function to um, adrenal, liver, and thyroid uh, metabolism. And uh, he, he charted uh, animals. Uh, he showed that a, a crocodile at rest consumed, it could weigh several hundred pounds but it would consume only as much oxygen as a cat at rest. And uh, he showed that their brains were the same size. And uh, so he believed that the brain uh, represented the the basal metabolic rate and uh, basically how alive you were. And when was uh, G.W. Cryo doing that work? Uh, in the 30s, okay. 1936 was one of his last books, I think. So already our, our metabolic rate was lower than people in other parts of the world. That's interesting. Uh, moving on to another question here. Um, uh, it's a very simple. What is a healthy libido? Um, uh, one that uh, I, I suppose... Um, is satisfying and fits in to uh, the rest of your life. All right. That sounds good to me. Uh, that was from Jacob. And then moving on to Justin. Um, see, Justin says, I know several people with chronically low blood pressure, such as uh, 85 to 100 over 60. Doctors generally consider it not to be a problem. Do you think this is indicative of any underlying physiological problem? I also found it interesting. Everyone that I have met with an, with this issue were women. Um, I I think it it does reflect a, a low metabolic rate, uh, but it doesn't always uh, mean that there's any uh, problem uh, other than uh, probably uh, you could be more productive if you were uh, producing more energy and needed more blood circulation. Uh, when I spent some time in Florida, I was miserable because of the high humidity and high temperature and couldn't take my usual amount of, of thyroid. And uh, I found that at times uh, during the night uh, when I wasn't taking thyroid and was being suffocated, by by the uh, humid heat uh, that my blood pressure would uh, 
go down. I think the lowest it went was um, almost what they, they would define as, as dead. I, I think it was something like 50 over 25. But I felt fine. But, uh, I see. And why, co- why couldn't you take the thyroid because of the humidity and heat? Um, because then I, I would uh, feel like I was being uh, boiled. Oh, you get too hot, I see. Uh, yeah, uh, just yeah. sitting at rest, I would be sweating furiously. Yeah. Um, see, another person asked, uh, uh, when did your digestive problems start in your life? And, and um, uh, I, was there I any cause was, for them? Yeah, I, I think when I was about six months old. Oh. <laughs> wow. Do you attribute it to anything? Uh, yeah, I think uh, probably my mother's hypothyroidism contributed. Yeah. And that consisted of just having uh, stomach uh, uncomfortability whenever you ate something that didn't agree with you? Is that basically... Um, yeah, periodic uh, headache attacks mm-hmm. starting at a very young age. And why, the person also asked, why uh, Why can some people uh, eat things uh, without any regard for what they are and and apparently not feel bad and other people you know, have a horrible time and have to watch whatever they eat and can't eat wheat, etc. Um, the whole whole history and, and uh, uh, balance of your different organs. Um, some people uh, have um, stronger body parts, uh, different shapes, uh, different lengths of intestine and so on. Uh, the whole balance influences each part. I see, I see. Um, um, what did I want to ask you next? Oh, oh, I know, I know. One, one, one other question here. Um, here. Um, somebody, somebody. You're, you're starting to break up, so I can't quite hear you. Am I? Okay, can you hear me now? Uh, barely, it's gurgly. Okay, uh, I'm bad enough even when I'm not gurgly, so uh, maybe I should just call you right back, Ray. Okay. It's easy to do. I'll be right back. Hi, Ray. I'm going to drop off this one call. There. Okay, we're talking to Dr. Raymond Pete out in Eugene, Oregon, and we're discussing uh, science history and uh, medical history and health issues today. And... Um, the rough theme of the show was um, indicators of health. And Ray, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, good. Um, I have another question from Robin. Uh, why are they testing for PSAs uh, even though he has had his prostate removed? Uh, I guess they're doing screening to see if he still has any cancer, but uh, supposedly the PSAs come from the prostate so why are they testing if they've removed it? Do you have any idea about that? I, I think they believe that it indicates that you still have some parts of uh, the prostate, some prostate cells lodged in other parts of your body. But uh, when you measure uh, that antigen in women, <laughs> it doesn't mean that they have prostate cancer. Uh, uh, that antigen is found in women and it varies uh, it rises uh, when their estrogen is high, and uh, maybe it would ha- have some 
correspondence to risk of breast cancer or something, but uh, it, it doesn't really mean as much as, as the uh, medical people think. And what is, do you know what PSA stands for? I don't. Prostate-specific antigen. Okay. But they find the same antigen in women who don't have a prostate. So yeah. It's, it's not accurately named. Yeah, I see. And uh, is, it's possible that perhaps it's made in other parts of the body. Must be. Oh, okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, here's one that we can all relate to uh, from Stefan. Uh, teen acne, um, and maybe acne in general. He says, uh, see, he's tried uh, vitamin A, topical Nutrisorb, and supplemental extra zinc. What are the causes of acne? What about sugars, chocolate? I've heard they don't, but is that true? And what cures are likely? And uh, would topical progesterone help? And is that okay in a young teen? Um, I've seen topical progesterone work almost instantly. A, a pimple would be forming a red uh, lump and would regress as soon as they put progesterone on it. But uh, they're... It usually involves uh, a bacterial infection, and uh, the immune system is uh, reacting badly, uh, not uh, simply getting rid of the bacteria, but producing an inflammation. And uh, so there are several things involved, but uh, vitamin A and thyroid function are two that are are essential for the differentiation of the uh, cells in the skin and and the follicle structure and the oil glands and such, and the thyroid, which regulates the hormones. Uh, but the skin is is a major source of steroid hormone synthesis, and uh, the, the thyroid and vitamin A are partly acting to uh, maintain. Uh, a healthy steroid hormone uh, turnover. Uh, cholesterol uh, can be turned into uh, uh, the various steroids uh, and the precursors like uh, uh, pregnenolone and DHEA can be metabolized either well or badly uh, depending on your whole nutritional uh, situation, but uh, thyroid and vitamin A are the most often involved. Uh, the B vitamins, uh, you have to make sure your whole system is well nourished. Mm, I see. So it could be from any number of causes. Um, yeah, and it's always good to uh, keep in mind the um, the bacteria that like to live on oily, moist skin. Mm. And is is your body trying to get rid of some uh, pollutant or toxin? Is that why it erupts no. like that? No. No. Okay. All right. Uh, so I'm gonna. We're running. We only got about t- ten minutes left here. A little more than that. Um, here's a question. Uh, see, I've read somewhere that people with Alzheimer's don't tend to get cancer, and uh, I'd like to know specifically why Ray thinks that happens. Um, I don't know if it happens. Okay. Um. Uh, partly, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, I, I think, is uh, not not 
consistently diagnosed. Uh, sometimes uh, just people who uh, get to be 90 or 95 uh, aren't, aren't very attentive to current events and uh, get diagnosed with Alzheimer's when mm. uh, they might not have all of the, the diagnostic uh, features that a person who is 35 would have. Yeah. Uh, it was originally uh, a disease uh, called uh, pre-senile dementia when a, a 40-year-old would start acting uh, absent-minded or, or uh, mindless. Yeah, uh, we have another caller on the line here. Uh, caller, you're on WMRW. Uh, you're live. Oh, great. Thank you. Um, so, uh, first of all, I wanted to thank Dr. Pete for sharing all this extremely useful information. Um, I just had a couple of quick questions. Uh, I had sent an email, but I thought I'd quickly call in. Uh, so my question is regarding um, metabolism, stimulating foods, foods that heat up your body. Um, so what I have experienced is that eating a calorie-dense meal like a pancake seems to warm me up more than drinking a lot of liquid like orange juice, which uh, Dr. Pete recommends. So I'm a bit confused why you do not consider starch to be superior to liquids in terms of raising body heat. Uh, well, uh, the um, the starch is slightly more than a, a sucrose uh, triggers insulin, and uh, the insulin uh, tends to lead to increased cortisol production. And uh, cortisol can raise your body temperature, but uh, uh, that isn't the kind of uh, increased metabolism that is generally helpful. But it, it can warm you up by a kind of stress reaction. Uh, some people wake up uh, with a, a very uh, warm body, uh, 98% Point three uh, temperature possibly, and uh, an eighty pulse. And then after they eat something in the middle of the day, uh, their temperature might be uh, under ninety eight and with a, a seventy pulse. Uh, that means that their uh, nighttime stress hormones, especially cortisol, um, were responsible for uh, keeping the, the metabolic rate and heat production up, but uh, that tends to lead to uh, long-range problems where uh, if you cycled your heat production down during the night and up during the day, uh, that would uh, lead to longer-range benefit. Hmm. Thank you. Um, one other quick question I had um, is, I just, uh, a purely theoretical question, um, then what age uh, do you think a male can expect to maintain a healthy sex life without, let's say, the use of Viagra or things like that? Um, I shouldn't have uh, any particular age relation. Uh, testosterone is testosterone and DHEA and uh, thyroid and so on are all uh, part of 
of the uh, good uh, sexual energy, and uh, there's no reason why those should uh, drop off at any particular age. Uh, oh. uh, okay, and, and do you do you consider drugs like Viagra to be helpful or harmful? Um, harmful because of the uh, uh, it acts uh, largely by increasing uh, nitric oxide and uh, carbon monoxide, and uh, those have uh, lots of harmful effects. Oh, interesting. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Pete. Mm-hmm. Thanks for calling. And uh, Ray, I had a question, and that's uh, I've been reading lately about um, the uh, problem, supposed problem of uh, having too much calcium in your diet. I know that uh, you've recommended uh, supplementing calcium, and it's been a big help uh, in my life in getting my teeth to uh, stop degenerating. And but I was just reading an article that somebody posted. Uh, about uh, people who drink too much milk and how that's going to cause a lot of uh, calcification of tissues and uh, other problems with uh, calcium building up in places it shouldn't. And I was just wondering if you could comment on uh, how much calcium somebody should take and whether those problems that those people are talking about uh, are accurate. Um, uh, no, that's uh, the result of uh, some medical people who had a mechanical way of thinking about uh, input and output, but uh, for at least 50 years, it's been known that parathyroid hormone uh, increases when you're deficient in calcium and vitamin D and uh, possibly other factors, but especially uh, parathyroid hormone increases uh, as your need for calcium uh, increases. And if you aren't eating uh, enough uh, calcium and vitamin D, you, your hor- your um, parathyroid hormone will take calcium out of your bones, and when it does that, it's putting it into your uh, soft tissues, uh, contributing to hardened arteries and kidneys, and uh, even the brain can uh, calcify. Uh, and the um, prevention is to get enough of the uh, nutrients such as vitamin D and vitamin K that regulate calcium, uh, not get too much phosphate, but to get plenty of calcium and uh, keep your parathyroid hormone and prolactin and cortisol down by a a good intake of these uh, uh, protective anti-stress nutrients. And uh, in, in fact, the the surest way to calcify your uh, arteries and kidneys is to uh, uh, be a, uh, a calcium avoider. Because that's what they recommend you do, right, if you end up with um, kidney stones. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, for kidney stones in particular, uh, a good balanced diet uh, will uh, make the, the urine not release the... Uh, calcium crystals, uh, eating the, the right pH of the urine and uh, uh, not not having a, a proteins leak out into the urine uh, will uh, prevent the crystallization so you can p- 
pour out lots of calcium through your urine if you're eating a lot of calcium, but it doesn't uh, calcify. It passes out in solution. I see. And and when your uh, vitamin D and vitamin K are adequate uh, and your parathyroid hormone is low, your arteries aren't going to uh, take up calcium. Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a little alarming if what you say is accurate, and it sounds good to me, um, that the uh, mainstream medical world has it so backwards. Well, yeah, there are several journals. Uh, you can find on PubMed uh, several articles that have uh, demonstrated that uh, eating plenty of calcium is protective. Hmm. And uh, finally, uh, we're almost done here, but getting back to the uh, the loose theme of the show about uh, uh, indicators of health, uh, what does uh, intention have to do with uh, the testing uh, for uh, certain markers of health? Because it, it seems to me that many times the tests these days have gotten away from being about the health of the patient, and they're, they seem to be uh, more of an abstract nature in terms of or maybe not even abstract, maybe more in terms of uh, just economics, where the, uh, the intention of uh, testing the patient is about using the test equipment, uh, paying for uh, new uh, scanning equipment and, and the like. It just seems like the medical industry has gotten away from uh, treating the patient to uh, running a business. Um, yeah, I think with x-rays, that's often the case. Uh, they have to keep their... Uh, equipment busy to, if it isn't paid for they, they want to keep an income uh, so they can get a new machine when this one's paid off uh, the, the um, a lot of the testing is is done to prevent uh, lawsuits uh, someone uh, someone yesterday said she asked her doctor uh, what he would do if they were his symptoms, would he have the x-rays or the uh, CAT scan? And he said, no, but I wouldn't sue myself. <laughs> and uh, so finally uh, she got him to uh, agree that she didn't need the uh, CAT scan or x-ray. Hmm. Yeah, so you can uh, talk to your doctor about unnecessary testing. Uh, there's a question that just came in by email. Um, are there dangers to antibiotics and how they modify gut flora? Is it best to seek maximum sterility for the gut or maybe, or it, may it be better to attempt to cultivate an overall balance of gut flora? What are some of the best factors for cleaning the gut? Um, I think the, the best, safest, long-range things are the uh, indigestible uh, but antiseptic fibers of uh, raw carrot <clears throat> or bamboo shoots, cooked bamboo shoots, uh, happen to be not in themselves dig digestible, but to contain antibiotic substances that help to suppress bacteria. And the, uh, the whole small intestine in a very healthy person is sterile. Uh, the more active you're uh, digestive fluids and enzymes are the more sterile your small intestine will be. The more sluggish your metabolism, low thyroid function, the more likely you are to have bacteria living uh, far up 
towards your stomach in the uh, small intestine. And so stimulating the intestine with uh, something like uh, uh, raw carrot or, or bamboo shoots uh, helps, uh, but keeping your me- metabolic rate up is the basic thing so that your your digestive fluids are killing off or preventing the growth of the bacteria. All right. Well, uh, there's plenty more questions to ask, and uh, but we'll have to save it for another time. Uh, Ray, thanks so much for being on Politics and Science again okay, and, and uh, being so patient and uh, for supporting uh, community radio and here in central Vermont all the way from Eugene, Oregon. Okay, thank you. All right, thanks, Ray. Good night. Bye. And that is uh, Dr. Raymond Pete, uh, physiologist, uh, Ph.D. in biology, science historian, uh, you can find out a lot more about him by going to his website, raypeat.com. That's R-A-Y-P-E-A-T dot com, and you'll find many of his newsletters there ready to read and all for free. So uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks for supporting WMRW. I'm very grateful for all the support you've shown uh, for this show and for having Ray Pete and other scientists like him on the air uh, broadcasting through 2013 and also thanks to everybody who participated in the show for sending in their questions and for calling in. This is John Barkhausen signing off for Politics and Science. <laughs>